okay? Very good question, sorry I didn't make it clear. And so I'm, the only way I can make this really clear is to use, I think using story is, as, as an example is good because it makes it real. So I'll, let me talk about me. Um, I would not have always said this about myself, uh, but it is true, and so therefore, why deny it? Uh, uh, but it's, it's a big difference from identity. So Al Mohler at the ERLC, Ethics and Religious Liberty Conference uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention, stepped up about a year and a half ago and said something that uh, made the podium rock and sent rattles through the Christian world, which was that he said, uh, there does seem to be something to the idea of a homosexual orientation. And what he meant by that is what we have said here, right? That there seems to be a, a confluence of causes, right? And we pulled orientation and change out because a lot, I mean, excuse me, causation, because a lot of people think when you say orientation, you're also saying causation, right? So that if I say I have a homosexual orientation, then I'm saying that it was it's fixed, I was born that way, this is who God designed me to be. And we want to say, no, those things aren't necessarily the same because causation, it happens in a number of different ways for a number of different people, and there's various influences. But not, and remember when we said that not everybody, if I travel from San Francisco to Raleigh, North Carolina, I went from the East Coast to the West Coast. But I can also go from uh, Los Angeles to New York City and I arrived at a different place on the East Coast. And so we want to say that there are different types of homosexualities. There are different, or the way, orientations is the way we would say that. There are different people who experience different attractions or a mixture of attractions. And so um, this is a safe room, and I can say it. And, and, and honestly, I... There have been people that have uh, really been bothered by me saying this, but it's true. I, I experience fundamentally a homosexual orientation. It means that on the whole, I do not experience attraction to women. I was so ashamed to say that for so long. And, and the reason why it's helpful for me to say it is because uh, a pastor that I had in Texas for a while, Matt Chandler, he said something that's very helpful. He said, uh, be anything but a liar. You can deal with what you acknowledge. You can't deal with what you won't acknowledge, right? And so the truth is, is that uh, I believe because I was married, I had to say X, Y, and Z about myself so people wouldn't pity my wife. Well, don't, nobody needs to pity my wife. She's a wonderful woman who understands me well, and I understand her well, and we're going to talk a little bit about the beauty of covenant and how God has honored that covenant and increasingly given us uh, uh, physical intimacy. But I don't, you know, this happens in the Christian bubble, right? When you're in a movie and you're like, hey, don't watch that. I, I wish that some of that were a problem for me, but it's not. And I shouldn't say I wish. That is a bad way to say that. I do not wish that was a problem for me, but I have wished it. I have wished it. And someone did say to my wife one time recently, don't you wish Dan lusted after women? <laughs> and Casey said, 
No. <laughs> she goes, why would I want Dan to exchange one struggle for another struggle that is equally as problematic before the Lord? Why would I want that? Just because you think it's okay culturally? And it would shock you, the people that say these things. But, so, being honest about that just says this, that is what I experience, right? It is not who I am. That is the difference between orientation and identity. My orientation of sexual attraction does not define me, okay? My identity in Christ defines me, and again, that goes back to my fundamental starting place, which is as an image bearer, and if I have a high view of that, then I'm going to have a high understanding of what the gospel does in my life. Um, and so that's the difference between orientation and uh, identity. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Because if there's a question now, I would love to answer. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. So m the majority of individuals, side A type individuals or people within the gay community w would say what I just said is laughable. That's fair, right? I mean, let's say that. That, uh, that, and that's because we bought into a secular cultural paradigm that says sexual identity is the primary piece about you. Well, I think that's a, I think that discussion is nowhere near over, right? I don't think there's anybody, they may, you may say that, but in, in the cultural wind of popular news and entertainment may be going there, but the literature's not going there with you. The scientific literature is allowing us to say that there are a number of things that make up identity, and there are a number of things that bring up sexual identity, and sexual identity is only one piece of a broader identity. But as a Christian, I want to affirm what the scriptures say about me first, because that's my leading source of authority and narrative about myself. And to the person that would be offended by that, again, I said this earlier, I would just simply look at them and say, um, I hear you, and I just want you along with me, because I have a buddy named Matt that uh, we went to seminary together and, uh, in Dallas. Uh, and uh, he said to me, he goes, he goes, you don't know what you're asking of me. And I looked at him and I said, don't tell me I don't know what I'm asking of you. I know exactly what I'm asking of you. Uh, and I was able to have that conversation with him in a different way, right? But I'm like, I know what I'm asking of you, and I know the difficulties involved. But I'm asking you to be willing to trust that God has a better vision for your long-term sexuality than you do. And that puts someone on the hot seat because if he says, no way, then what you're saying is that your current understanding of your sexuality, no matter what God may reveal to you, trumps anything he could say to you. And that's a level of hubris that, right, requires a whole other conversation. Um, because if you say you're a Christian, then you should be willing to be open to what God may say about you. But someone is saying there, no, God will never say anything different to me than I already believe. Well, heaven forbid. God has changed things I've believed last month that needed to be changed, right? So I, as a believer, should always be open to the Spirit of God, opening my heart to the truth of God and who he is that would change my perspective. I should always be open to that. And if I'm not, I'm in sin, right? 
So that's so yeah. I mean, there would be people who would laugh at what I'm saying, but I don't laugh back. So moving on. Okay, so ministry paradigms. Um, so now we're going to talk about how we think. So when I say paradigm, think lens. So here's what's really important. When you have two people talking, and this is very important, I'll use Kim as an example. Kim and I are talking. Uh, and so Kim may be operating out of an integrity lens, which says this, is that God made you uh, in his image, and that image is pure, and it involves a biblical sexual ethic, and you need to walk in congruence with that, and you need to, um, you, you need to repent and choose Jesus and walk in him in righteousness despite what you believe to be true. But I'm operating out of a disability paradigm which says that, no, no, Kim, you don't understand. I, um, I, my, and I'm not making light of this. I'm just role-playing here. I, um, my father left me as an early age. and I, I, I have no male figure in my life. And I, 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 don't, I never got that. And so I, I have no understanding of biblical manhood. And there I, am, I need to reconnect with this sense of who I am so that I can. So my homosexuality is, is a disability. It's, a, it's, a, um, it's, it's a, a way I see myself. It's a psychological issue primarily, not a spiritual issue primarily. Uh, we might both agree on where I should go but we're both talking out of completely different paradigms. And if we don't understand the paradigm which we're operating out of, how will we ever as a church do ministry together in one accord? Does that make sense? So if everybody in the church is operating out of various paradigms, then it'll be very difficult for us to come together and walk in ministry together with one voice, right? And so there's another type of disability paradigm, which is one that I would say to you, that is Roman, I'm not Romans 1, but that says the fall, right? We are all, in some sense, disabled by the fall, spiritually, right? We are bound in our sins apart from the righteousness of God and the reconciliation of the cross. And so uh, we all walk with that, the way we've said that before, right? A spiritual limp, so to speak, and we're in need of that reconciliation. And so that's a, that's a biblical way of saying disability. Um, the other one is an affirmation disability. I mean, Sorry, affirmation paradigm, where you are talking to someone who looks at you and says, I don't understand what your problem could be with two people that love each other. They're willing to say yes to each other for life. They're willing to say yes to a child into their home that needs adoption. But your hang-up is that they're both men? God certainly could never be against two monogamous people that want to enter a covenant of love together. And when you read the Bible, you're reading the passages on homosexuality are really condemning non-monogamous wrong practice of homosexuality. God's never in the Bible condemned. This is Matthew Vines, God and the gay Christian. Uh, Matthew Vines says God never condemned the idea of a monogamous gay relationship, and that idea wasn't present for the biblical writers, right? That's an affirmation paradigm. Well, how hard is it for an affirmation paradigm and an integrity paradigm to talk to each other? I mean, that's very difficult. 
I, I go to the City Church in Fort Worth, Texas, which is like, like this. It's a, it's a lot. Texas has two conventions, so it's a Baptist General Convention of Texas and Acts 29. Um, but uh, our median age is probably uh, a little higher than most Acts 29, but it's still 30s, mid-30s. Um, and so I know that in a church that has adopted our ministry and loves us well, and the, a lot of people agree with us, that there's a portion of our church that does not agree with us, and there's a portion of the millennial version of my church that is an affirmation view. I know that. And uh, that's going to be increasingly true of all churches. I can't speak to TCC, but I would bet there might be a small percentage of individuals who quietly believe that this is much ado about nothing. Um, And so it's a different lens, right? Then I put in here shame because I want to argue that that is one lens that might kind of cast itself over all lenses, and it's the experience of the person living with same-sex attraction. The, you know, I had individuals in the, the church, and within the church, that could be parachurch and pastors, had an individual say to me, um, Dan, you should never talk about this, because the day you talk about it, your ministry is over. I had someone say to my wife, uh, Casey, you know, if you marry Dan, uh, there will be churches that will not have him as a pastor because of this. You know he'll never amount to anything in the Southern Baptist Convention, which has never been a desire of mine. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, and when that, that paradigm, it's a shame paradigm that kind of just gets cloaked over someone, no matter what they experience or what they're trying to do and walk forward with the Lord they feel as though they're looked at with a certain amount of condemnation. Now, I want to say, and Sean's helped me with this in the past, people living with same-sex attraction can make too much of themselves. Everybody hates me. No, that's not true. Don't believe your own press, right? But but there is a sense in which uh, shame is whether it be fair or not, is the fundamental paradigm that most people living with same-sex attraction walk in within the church. And we've got to work hard to pull that curtain back. And so what we're proposing, and I should have put this under there, propose, is a gospel paradigm. Is that you don't have to deny, shame should be denied, but you don't have to, uh, and affirmation should be denied, but you don't have to deny integrity or disability and adopt gospel. You can see integrity and disability rightly, but put all of that under the cloak of the gospel and say, we're going to, and, and listen, we all know, right, uh, gospel-centeredness has become a buzzword, and sometimes it means nothing. Because we say, oh, we're gospel-centered. Well, what does that mean? Well, we're gospel-centered. But, but what does that look like? And a lot of people would have a hard time saying that. What does it look like? For you to, and so what I would simply say is the gospel paradigm says that what that looks like is, is if I see somebody as an image bearer first, and in need of the reconciling love of the cross that Jesus provided for them, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Right? It has to change the way I treat somebody. If it doesn't, I'm in sin. 
It has to change the way I treat somebody. And it will change, I want to argue for, the way we're willing to walk with somebody long term. Right? And it will change the way your small group reacts when someone shares a deeper part of themselves and then your small group leaders who I believe small group leaders in this church have a shepherd model probably. Is that fair to say? Small group leaders function as many shepherds within their, yeah. And then there's some that are just facilitators, right? Um, but it will, if your small group leaders are trained rightly, then they, they're, they're helping lead their small group into right reactions to love well or to reach out in their community. And so that's why small group leaders understanding this is so important because they're going to help lead the smaller group of people and uh, we respond better. And responding better, just initial response, sometimes keeps the door open that would normally be shut. And somebody, because I've been in small groups where I've shared and it, it was... And it just doesn't get brought back up. Because, and I, I for whatever reason, uh, I'm intimidating or people don't tend to push back on me uh, or for whatever reason, but a lot of it's probably a lack of comfortability, right? Well-intentioned, don't want to hurt your feelings, don't know what to say, and we need to start learning what to say, you know? And we need to start learning that saying something is not wrong. Now, here's the problem. I was ta talking uh, a little bit about this. Josh, right? Hunter. No, sorry. Hunter means Josh. Uh, I was talking to Hunter a little bit about this, but too often we, we, have, to, we have to pass code protect our ministry. And meaning we think that individual needs to say the right three things first before we can move forward with them. Uh, what if someone comes to you and says, well, we're going to do a case study, so I won't steal that. But are you open to walking with someone who doesn't believe it's sin? They have an affirmation lens. Would they be comfortable in your small group? I hope they would. Does that mean your small group has to stop saying certain things? Nope. Uh, but could they, could they come and be a part of your community? Could they be loved? Would your home be a great place to use as a weapon for the gospel? Yeah, it sure would, right? And hopefully, and, and with no quid pro quo and no commitment that I'm going to walk with them for six weeks or so. If this doesn't change, then I'm going to admit that I can't help them and I'll move on. No, are you willing to walk with them for six years, ten years? I know a young lady... Uh, who has an uh, individual in their family who is gay, who has walked so well with her loved one for so many years. And that relationship is still open, and her loved one has not changed. But she has ministered well with the gospel. She has effectively walked in the name of Jesus and promoted the kingdom and loved her, her loved one with the gospel and treated her as an image bearer in so many ways. And they have a great relationship and her, her loved one knows exactly where she is, but she hasn't repented because that's not my job, that's God's job.
I just want, I want to be involved for the long haul with right thinking, right words, and right actions, and let God do what God does. And I believe there's glory, even if, if individuals don't change. God is glorified when we walk out gospel love effective, you know, effectively. We get joy, and that's not wrong. We get joy in loving the way we're supposed to, right? Uh, so the implications of uh, the gospel paradigm is we want to say that uh, theology moves from theory into relationship. And if your theology is apart from relationship, it is just theory. And it doesn't have a lot of practical good. Uh, understanding image as the true identity frees you to value individual dignity and worth. This is something that has revolutionized the way I see people. This has changed the way I see refugees. This has changed the way I see political candidates, some harder than others. Uh, this has changed, because I say, you're an image bearer. You are worthy of, you have dig. Oh, what's happening? Oh, okay. Um, you, you have dignity. And because you're a child of God, I can treat you with dignity. I can treat a prostitute with dignity. I can uphold her worth and value. And that's true of somebody that's living with same-sex attraction or somebody who's given themselves wholly over to this identity, right? Um, further, uh, we are free to understand and recognize the complexities of identity formation, meaning you don't have to run away from that conversation that's hard that we've been talking about. We, we can allow people to, to tell us their story, even if we don't agree with it. We can allow people to tell us their story. We can hear all the complexities, value what they have to say while still disagreeing, and in doing so, you're gaining credibility to speak. Now, I know that I'm promoting, and I've had conversations with individuals who disagree with me on this, that say, you're just backdooring the gospel. No way am I backdooring the gospel. The gospel is the vehicle that I drive into that relationship. Um, but I don't feel that that means I have to say these three things in this order or in that order. I believe that it cloaks everything I do, and therefore depending on the relationship, it may be different, you know? You may, you may have a friend who is a truthy that says, hey, man, shoot me straight. Tell me what you think. My brother-in-law is that way. My brother-in-law is an atheist, but he loves to talk about Christianity. So I'm like, let's do it. And we have really awesome, hard conversations, and he doesn't mind having them. Well, great. Well, that may not be where somebody's at right now, right? Somebody may be hurting and they need triage before they can hear some of the harder fundamental biblical truths that you're going to share. And I don't believe that's, I want to, I'm not, I'm not God and I am not infallible, but I personally want to free you from believing that that's somehow not faithful to God. I used to believe it was. I believed if I sat on an airplane next to somebody and didn't share the gospel right then and there, I was being unfaithful. Well, maybe that's what God's called me to do, and I should do it, right? 
But does that make sense? I don't want to belabor that point. I just want to say it frees us to let the gospel be the vehicle we drive and let that relationship form and let words be well spoken. Paul Tripp helped me with that with Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29 demands that all of our speech be grace-driven and it be well-timed. The truth is not, it's always true, but it doesn't have to be said all the time. It may not be the most helpful thing at the moment. I think of John Piper saying that the, the hospital room is no place for theology. Maybe, but the point being is that there's freedom in how you walk with somebody with a commitment to love, with gospel love. So relationship involves listening and understanding without sacrificing your convictions. If I have to, so I, I tweeted a guy the other day who wrote an article that I didn't agree with and I simply asked him a question. I said, is it possible for me to love with sincerity but sincerely disagree because I hold to an orthodox conviction? He responded back. He said, sincere, yes. Well-intentioned, yes. Love, no. So can he and I go further? No. But whose choice was that? His, not mine. Right? Because I want to say, I want to look someone in the eye and say, despite the fact we disagree, we want to, we, I want to be willing to have the conversation with you. Hunter brought up a good question to say that some people say, well, you believe I'm going to hell. Actually, I don't know. Homosexuality doesn't send you to hell. Unbelief sends you to hell. Your homosexuality may be a, a response of total unbelief. I don't know that. But here's what I'm willing to do. I'm will, I, I love you, and I'm willing to get to know you. So let's start with a cup of coffee or dinner and get to know each other. Tell me your story. I'll tell you mine. We'll share disagreements. We'll have hard conversations. But if we're both willing to do that, then let's do that. But let's not put hell in front of us and not be able to have a relationship, right? Is hell real? Yes. Are people there? Yes. But I don't have to lay that shibboleth down before I have a conversation with somebody. It's not, that's not necessary, in my opinion. But I believe in this particular context, too many Christians or, and pastors function out of a belief that that's necessary or will be accused of being soft or unfaithful. And so we need to lead with that and put that in our doctrinal statements and be, and be very nuanced in our church covenants and stuff. Um, so, and so we see relationship for the long haul. Uh, relationship is not just about influence, but it's about self, self-sacrificing gospel love. In other words... That relationship is still worth it, even if it doesn't appear that my influence has changed you. When I only value relationship because my ability to influence you, then I have turned that relationship into like this transaction. And I don't value you as a person. I don't value your dignity. I don't see you as an image bearer primarily. I see you as a problem to be fixed. And I see you as somebody who needs to agree with me or you're not worth my time. That is not a gospel paradigm. So, okay. I think we got out of that, so I want to, sorry.
Did, oh, is it? I'm sorry. I kicked me off. Yep. Are we back? There we go. So ministry and posture, reflections uh, on needed change. So uh, this is one of the contentions of our ministry. We have prosecuted the culture war so that we've done that in such a way that we have failed to realize that ministry is the primary goal of the church. The culture war is not the primary goal of the church. And the church has wasted, in my opinion, much of its prophetic voice by executing and prosecuting a culture war so that when we want to minister, we're not heard because we are tied to a cultural position or a political party. Does that make sense? And, and this is the fundamental, this is really an operating assumption of the gay community. And so Christians are seen as people who want to take away my rights first and foremost. And, and again, there's, there's a point for that discussion and there's people that are willing to tackle that writing. But I'm saying that the church needs to get back to what the church was meant to be, which is, is reconcilers to the gospel. And so I may win every seat in the House, in the Senate, and I may win the presidency, and I may win all the governorships, and I may get all the laws the way we need them to be, even if we were as a Christian church that monogamous, you know, we were straight down the line, we agreed, and you haven't changed a human heart. You haven't valued a human being's dignity and worth. You haven't spoken the, the reconciling love of the gospel into their life. You've just told them why this is not the way God created, this is not the way it should be, and you, that your you know, marriage coming unraveled hurts my marriage, etc. And uh, we so we want to refocus and put the put the focus back where it belongs on ministry in the local church to people who need, uh, so we say this often, it's not an issue to be won, but it's a person to be loved, right? And uh, there's actually a book out there on the table. Uh, he and I didn't talk about this, but I think I was saying that before him. One of my novel thoughts, but, uh, um, but that's okay. Uh, so, but it's a person to be loved, not an issue to be won. And I think too many times we approach homosexuality and we approach gay people as issues, not as image bearers. I know I'm sounding redundant, but I am okay with that. Because if you don't leave here with anything but that, that's awesome. Um, and so our posture has to be related, uh, uh, that we think, uh, so we have related our posture in a way that we think this is an issue. Uh, and not actual people that we are called biblically to love. And so some reflections for ministry. We want to use people first, not, um, not language. We want to put people first, not certain types of language. Uh, and so think about what that may look like for you individually or as a person when you're doing ministry. Uh, and so we talked about this password-protected ministry. Uh, I had a conversation with a member of my family who said, you don't believe this is sin. I said, well, yeah, I do. But let me tell you why I don't think that's the first thing that you need to say. 
well, if that's not the first thing you need to say, then you're, you're not going to do this issue any good because you're going to be soft on sin. And I'm like, no, nothing could be further from the truth. Well, I don't see anywhere uh, on your, you know, that you say this is sin. I'm like, well, and I started to get into this conversation. Well, have you read my documents have, trying to prove? And then I was like, I don't have to prove this, actually. I'm free to love the gospel and speak the truth as is necessary, but I'm not, I don't have to say a, a four, you know, four-pronged password to get through the door to do ministry. And I think too many pastors and too many individuals believe that we have to get to this starting place with people before we can go forward. And I just want to say that you, what about just loving people? So I asked a buddy of mine that's living in the gay community, and I said, if non-affirming people wanted to love you well, is that possible? And he said, yeah, I believe it's possible. I believe there are ways for us to, to love each other and for you to love me without expectations that I'm going to be who you want me to be. Now, is that possible? Because I do have a goal in mind. I'm not going to lie. I do want to see someone reconciled. But can I have a relationship with them that demonstrates love and speaks the truth of the gospel as, it's, as, as I have the opportunity but doesn't have the expectation Again, that I'm going to transactionally change them in the next three weeks or then they're not worth my time. I believe that's possible. And so I think that's a ministry reflection for us. Um, and this is something that uh, we need to really deal with. Heart needs, and heart needs are spiritual needs. And so some individuals may need to have their real pain and difficulty dealt with first. This is increasingly true, guys, of, of people in the transgender community. This is one that makes us, we haven't talked a lot about it, but it makes us more uncomfortable than same-sex attraction. But gender dysphoria is real. It is real. And, there are, and so I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. Uh, this summer for my seminars, and there's a statue in the capital of Sacagawea. These guys didn't know who it was. And... Uh, I didn't either until the guy told me. Uh, and the one guy says to the other, hey, who's that? And the guy jokingly goes, that's Caitlyn Jenner. And everybody had a good chuckle around them. That stuff happens all the time. And all I wanted, I, I didn't speak up in that moment. But I wanted to say, hey, man, what if somebody around you was inwardly really struggling with their gender? Chances are you don't believe that's real and you believe it's part of the gay movement. It's not. And how will you love that person rightly with the gospel if all you do is your, your default is to, to mock it, right? Or we want to argue over whether we should call Caitlin Caitlin or Bruce because we, you know, what about the person, right? What about the person? And, um, and that's a big issue before us that makes us all uncomfortable. And to be quite honest with you, there's not a lot of Christian literature that's been written out there about it. The church is reacting right now. We're in full reaction mode on that particular issue. There's only one book out there that I know of that I would recommend, which is um, Gender Dysphoria by uh, Mark Yarhouse, uh, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. And uh, it's a good start. 
uh, but it's one of the only ones out there. Um, and so do the people, um, the people who come to you want to know some very simple but profound things. And I want to assert to you, I got asked this question, what do gay people think when they're coming to the church? And these are some of the things. Does God love me? They really want to know that. They think that God doesn't. Does God want me? Do you want me? Do you love me? And sometimes that means they want you to define love in a way you can't define love. So sometimes love is defined as you must accept everything about me or you are unloving. Well, that can't be true of any human relationship. But we can have a conversation about what that means and whether or not we can move forward. But I want to ask that question, and I'm not, you don't have to give an answer, but it's, it's a profound question, really that some of us need to deal with in our hearts and we need to repent on a personal level. Do you want gay people to come to Treasuring Christ Church? I mean, do you really? Like, do you want them here? And that may be a, like, that's an individual, personal, something to be dealt with. Because if, you, if your heart says, yeah, but, oh my gosh, and it, you're, caught up with how controversial it would be and how uncomfortable it would be, then I would say, you're, you have, I'm not judging you, but I'm saying you have work to do in your heart, right? And that's true of me. When my wife and I moved into Seawall Avenue downtown and she is inviting prostitutes into our house to have lunch, I was very uncomfortable with that. Not, and I had to ask myself, why? Well, it's because I thought I was better. It is. I thought I was better, and I didn't really want that in my house. That is, that is not a good reason to prevent me to do ministry, right? And so do you fundamentally want, and this is something I want to say, is that uh, the gay community is ready. This is at the bottom of this slide. Rosario Butterfield said that everything she learned about being hospitable as a pastor's wife she learned in the gay community. Think about that. As a pastor's wife who was formerly a lesbian um, and professor of English and high feminist credentials, she says that everything I've learned about hospitality and doing it well within the biblical church community as a pastor's wife, I learned that in the gay community. The gay community loves very well. Legends Bar downtown Raleigh, I went for the first time as a sophomore in college, and I went in terrified, and I walked out thinking I had found a family, because I saw several people I knew there, and I was scared to death. It was horror, because I was like, I'm found out. People know now, and instead of judging me, they walked up, and they hugged me, and they were like, awesome, and welcome. I'm glad you're here. And we developed a friendship. And the love that I thought I was seeking, I thought I had found. Because the gay community is ready with arms wide open to tell you this is who you are. This is the story you should believe. And we love you. And it is a true community. It's not just an agenda that's looking to destroy Christianity in America. It is not. It is a community that opens wide. Is the church ready to be that same type of community? Are we ready Is TCC ready for that? Are we willing and able to be the people we're called to be? 
do you want me? Right? Um, and so I would argue if, if there is a community that is ready to be that and is doing it well, how much more should the bride of Christ be that example? I mean, we should, and so this is all up here, right? And it's motivational more than it is uh, practical. So let's talk about priorities for ministry. Uh, these, uh, Michael Emlett, uh, Christian Counseling Education Foundation, sums these up very well. Uh, we must overcome a don't ask, don't tell environment. We have to unmask it. Everything, really, right? We have to overcome the don't ask, don't tell. Brad Hambrick, some of you may know him. Uh, he's, a associate, uh, he's a pastor with the Summit and a professor at Southeastern has written a book called Do Ask, Do Tell, due out in March. Um, and uh, the, it's an excellent book that says we got to pull back the mask of the conversation and we've got to be willing to, to create a community that is safe and vulnerable for people to say, this is who I believe I am or this is what I struggle with and the, the wince or the flinch doesn't happen and we walk forward together. And so what might, it, what might need to happen for your small group to be that? Is your small group, is that what we call it, small group here? Is your small group ready to move forward? Or does your small group need to have some conversations before you can get there, right? And only you know that. Because I would argue that small groups are ground zero for doing this type of ministry. Inviting someone into the larger corporate body probably isn't the first thing that's going to happen. I would feel wildly uncomfortable. Uh, So small groups are ground zero. Um, and so that we have to overcome that and, and unmask ourselves. And the greatest thing that can happen is for uh, all of us to be unmasked, really, so that we can walk in what we know. Um, we have to emphasize uh, identity in Christ over sexual identity. So when we're having this conversation with somebody, one very practical thing you can do is listen to the conversation on sexual identity. You don't have to put it aside or deny it. You can actually recognize it and say, let me tell you why I believe there is a better identity, a more joy-giving identity, a transcendent identity that is more true of you than this. And I believe that's a, that's, a, that's a conversation that can be had, and I believe people will listen. Why? Because you're not telling them that this experience is invalid. You're not telling them that this isn't true, you know, that it's, not, it's an unreal thing. You're saying, yes, I hear you, but let me tell you why you should emphasize identity in Christ. And if, if Christ's identity is emphasized, then shouldn't we believe that everything else will fall into order over time? through sanctification, I believe it will. And I believe it, it may take time. It has taken time in my life. But on September 23rd, 1999, my identity, at least relationally, became Jesus. And it's taken 16 years, but I've walked into that increasingly over 16 years. And the man I am today is because of Jesus Christ. And how I see myself today is because of Jesus Christ. And because... Churches like this, people like this, and pastors who did know how to do it, did it well, and I'm a product of that. So I want to argue what I'm, what I'm arguing for has been done in my life, and churches like TCC are poised to do it. I would argue that TCC is on the, the 
right end of this practical conversation. And in churches like Vintage 21 and the Summit are on the right end of this. It's, it's we want to help with love and humility pull our other brothers and sisters in the church to, to go the same direction with us, right? So even this church can be a model and an influence for other churches to walk forward in this. Because metropolitan churches, churches that are situated in cities and metropolitan communities, uh, the, the rate of sexual attraction, same-sex attraction, is much higher than the national average in metropolitan communities. They say typically in a metropolitan community where the national average of same-sex attraction is 6 to 8%, it's more like 10 to 12 in a metropolitan community. Well, that makes sense, right? Because more tends to be more progressive, et cetera. There tends to be more experiences and stuff along those lines. Uh, we need to promote a, these are all, these are five real big takeaways for you that I want you to be able to take away. We need to promote a realistic, biblical expectation of change. Change cannot mean heterosexual. I had a grandmother call me last week and say, will you please talk to my 17-year-old grandson? If you'll just, we have three girls that are, are, that like him we just want him to be willing to go out on a date with one of them. Sweet woman. Meant well. And I had to explain to her why that's the last thing her grandson needed right now. And that may be something her grandson walks into. But biblical expectation of change should be one degree of glory to another. We are changed into his image. And the image is restored. And because of that, our ethics and our morality start to become rightly ordered. Ethics and morality don't get rightly ordered and then we become one with Jesus. It does not work <coughs> that way. The gospel is an inside-out transformation, not an outside-in. And so we can't expect someone to... And, and by the way, if we're asking about ideals, if this is homosexuality and this is heterosexuality, I believe most people would say this is the ideal, heterosexuality. But that heterosexuality is still broken we may not see that that man has been looking at pornography for 12 years or that his wife has had an extramarital affair or an emotional affair. We may not see that. So we want to say that's not the ideal. Jesus is the ideal. So we're not pointing people to heterosexuality. We're pointing them to Jesus and letting God rightly order the things he's designed to rightly order, and he will do that in his time. And so we want to have a biblical expectation of what change looks like. And change, I want to be honest, guys, it will rarely mean heterosexual attraction. It might never mean that this person feels totally comfortable in their body. So what's the goal then? That even despite uncomfortability or despite attraction, they would say, and I love this phrase with all my heart, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the agenda I have for my life. Jesus is better than my heart says this is. Jesus is better. And so therefore I choose Jesus despite what my sin tells me or what my experience tells me. Lastly, I, and this is a big one, we need to create a context for singles to thrive in our churches. That doesn't necessarily mean we need to have a singles ministry. But we need to create a context where singles can thrive. The church is a family of families, right? 
are we willing to say, this is a wonderful way for uh, older generation saints in the church to adopt singles into their home and into their small group and into their family and to take them on and to, to give them the intimacy and the willingness, ability for them to just sit in their sweat clothes on your couch and watch a movie and eat popcorn and be treated like a member of your family or incorporate them into your uh, routine of putting your children to bed and showing them what your marriage looks like and loving, just loving them well and, and incorporating them into the body rather than putting them over here as just this group that's not married yet, right? And so their ability to feel full potential of godliness in the church depends upon them getting married and they're not married so ugh. and there are women at this church who have who've walked in that well there's women in my life that I know because of my wife that have walked singleness well we need to create context for them to survive and thrive well because most individuals who are same-sex attracted will choose celibacy we don't demand it of them. And this is where I want to say something very unique in the context of this conversation. My story is not everybody's story. So just because I got married does not believe I believe everyone should. But I will say that if, you, if sexual attraction is something that is true of you, it is more likely than not that you should get married. That can be controversial. But I believe we have devalued the possibility of marriage in this conversation, and we have elevated celibacy as the only option. I just want to say that if the gospel is true, then every hope should be available under the tent of the gospel. And so if marriage is something... I have a... Bro, uh, not a... My brother, but a brother who says, I want to have a wife. I want to have the love of a woman, but I can never give that to her because sexually that's not where I'm at. I say, not true, not true. And because my marriage is an example of that, and it's one reason we went forward to tell the story and to be open, is because my honeymoon night, I'm just going to be honest with you, I was scared to death. Anxiety because I did not know if this would ever be, if I would ever be for my wife what I was thought I was supposed to be for her. And I wasn't, right? And there are times where I haven't been. But what my wife and I have done over the course of 12 years is say yes to Jesus. And because of that, he's deepened covenant. And covenant is at the heart of the gospel. And so we've said covenant matters more than personal desire. And there is beauty in self-sacrificing for the love of another. And so as I've chosen my wife over 12 years to say yes to her and no to myself, God has honored that. He has honored that. And it's not that heterosexuality is the point. It's not. It's still not true. But he's honored that covenant. And I believe more people that are same-sex attracted can have functioning, thriving, beautiful, God-glorifying marriages. And we need to at least say that's an option. We don't need to promote it as the point, but we need to say it is an option, and it is available to you if that's what you want. 
we don't want to limit people because the gospel does not limit hope. That's all I'll say. I mean, I just really believe that with all my heart. And, I, you know, there are people that have written to us that pity us. And they're like, your marriage must be so hard. And I'm like, what marriage isn't, right? What marriage isn't hard? Somebody said to us one time, I can only imagine how hard your marriage is because even when sex is easy. And I'm like, I know a lot of people, and I have never heard a married couple describe their sex life as easy. Never heard that described as easy. So I just want to say that hope is available, but we also don't want to promote our story as the story or the only one. We want to say identity in Christ is first and foremost, and God is going to allow all types of things. Will you allow God to write the story in your life, or will you demand that the story you want to write be the one? And that's a fundamental question of the Christian life, right? Not just people who are living with same-sex attraction. And so finally, don't confuse, in this, do not confuse temptation with sin. We are not the sum total of what we're tempted by. Uh, and just because someone has real sincere temptation does not believe they're walking in active sin. And uh, when I came to that realization, it changed my Christianity functionally. And that will change the way you, you minister to somebody so, uh, radical hospitality in the LGBT community is saying, now what does it look like to reach out? Just lastly, is it possible to reach our gay neighbors? I want to say yes, it is. But it's going to require a paradigm shift in the way we do evangelism. It's going to require us to get involved in relationships with no immediate end goal in mind, but just to love and gain the opportunity to speak the truth. Because right now, the, the toxicity is so high, and the lack of trust is so high, we just need to love. And, and let the conversation unfold over time. But just choosing to say, I want you. To look at someone and say, I don't know what you've been told, I don't know what you've experienced, but God loves you, and I love you. Well, do you think, no, 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 I love you. Can we be friends? Right? And just walk forward in that. It's also the, the outreach that we have is going to have different goals in mind. Uh, and so those goals that may be immediate in trying to win someone to Jesus, we may have a different long-term goal. Um, and then maybe, controversially, maybe just church membership. There's a lot of pre-discipleship that happens in the context of a church. Can people be involved in a music ministry? And I'm asking questions now, because I'm theorizing. Can people be involved in a music ministry without being a Christian? Can they use their gifts in the church without being a Christian? But they're coming alongside this community. Can they greet? Can they... Uh, be involved with small group and not be a Christian yet? I think the answer is clearly to that, yes, right? Uh, but where are the areas that people that are living in an openly LGBT lifestyle can come into the church and experience the beauty of community without having repented of their sin yet? 
but knowing that that community may be, provide the context or the matrix where that may one day happen. But we don't front load that this has to happen before this can happen. Does biblical community, can someone experience biblical community without experiencing biblical salvation? Love to know your thoughts on that, right? But I think we need to be willing to reimagine that conversation and say that church membership, we should set a really high bar for covenant membership. Knowing that everybody in our church won't choose that. And by the way, church membership isn't just about sexuality and morality. It's about a number of things. So that church membership isn't the only way we can have a relationship with somebody in the LGBT community. That may be what they choose long term. But are there ways that we can love them as a community? Well, I also want to say we, we can, as Christians, have similar outreaches. The number one source of uh, uh, homelessness is teenagers. Um, well, excuse me, not the number one source of homelessness. Uh, the number one source of homelessness among teenagers are LGBT individuals. And the suicide rate among those individuals is high. The church can hold hands with the LGBT community and say, that's not the way it should be. And we can step in and say, we want to make a difference there. We don't have to agree with them to step forward on that issue, right? Um, we can step forward and have families stand in the gap and say, I'll be the family to that homeless teen. I'll be the family to that homeless teen. We, can we get five families in this community to, to stand up and say, let's do that? Because they're here. They're on Hillsborough Street. They're, on, they're down by Legends on Friday and Saturday nights. They're there, trust me. And so those ministries can happen. And we need to find common outreaches. Can our church be involved? I've always thought, can we be involved in HIV and AIDS ministry? Can we be involved in testing and counseling and loving and being a part of that in our community? It requires some training. It requires us to jump through some hoops. But can we do that as an outreach and be a part of just stemming that tide? Yeah, we can. Right? So these all these, let's be imaginative and think about the ways that the things that the LGBT community cares about and how can we bring kingdom love and gospel love into those things and help move the needle and restore trust and gain relationships so that we can see individuals choose God's best for them. So that's part of what that may mean to, to reach out. So here's what we're going to do now. We're going to do a case study. And this case study is going to be around the table. Uh, I'm going to give you 10 minutes. I was going to give you a lot more time. But 10 minutes is sufficient for you to discuss this together and to think through it. It'll take you a minute to read it. And then you're going to see uh, parentheses and an asterisk. And those are areas that I want you to pause. And they're, they're, they're turning points in the conversation that I want you to pause and think about what that may look like. So uh, an openly gay couple uh, begins coming to TCC for several weeks. Pause. Would that be possible? What would that look like? What types of conversations would happen upon initial, do you have that now? How have you reacted? And everybody doesn't have to ask the same questions. This is why 
the New York imagination as a table. Um, they spend this time getting to know the people and are drawn to the emphasis on the poor and the oppressed. They inquire about small groups. What would be said to them? What would they be encouraged to do? Would certain things be said first? What would not be said? What would you encourage? How would you go about that? Um, the couple begins to attend a small group. What would that look like? How does the community, your small group, respond? Likely, probably very well. But what might that look like? Um, and after a few weeks, they start to inquire about the church's position on sexuality. How would you share your church's position on sexuality? What things would you front load it with? What would you say? Has anything in this training changed what you may say or changed the way you would go about it? Um, after another month, they desire to have their son dedicated. Can children be dedicated if parents aren't? This is a big one in the gay community right now. Can, because 80% of the LGBT community is religious. Most people think that they're an all-religious community. They're not. They're very religious. And they want to have, as we increase in gay marriages and, and adoptions for gay and lesbian couples, there's going to be an increasing desire to have their children dedicated in churches. Would TCC do that? Should you? Should you not? If not, why not? Something to think about. And, and some of these are elders' questions too, right? And your elders are going to think through that, but you as, as lay members will think through it as well. Um, after another month, they desire to have their son dedicated. Eventually, the family asks about membership. How would you handle that? And what would you, you know, what would you imagine your church should say moving forward? And again, this isn't just argumentative stuff. This is thinking about how to put our convictions together with love and truth and what would we say and how would we go about it. So what do you imagine each point in this scenario would look like at TCC for various groups, elders, leaders, members? What conversations should take place at each of the points? And uh, how far do you imagine it would get or should it get? Would it get to the point of a membership conversation? Okay, talk amongst yourselves.